ATV Talk, the podcast. Sit down with your host industry professional, Leonard Duncan, as the men and women from the ATV world bring their behind-the-scenes stories to life. Every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. And remember, dream big. It could be your story one day. Duncan Technologies International. More than 33 years in the industry building racing programs and ATVs around the world. We build winners. Hey, well, I'm Leonard Duncan. It's a pleasure to meet you. Well, it's a pleasure to meet you. It's been quite a while. I'm sure I met at some point, but... That was a long time ago. I think I think we did back when when I was still just a, a, a youngster watching all you guys and and thinking how amazing it was. It was an interesting time back then. That's no, there's no doubt. Well, uh, Tracy, I would like to welcome you to ATV Talk, and I'm your host Leonard Duncan, and this is all about you. This is your hour. Uh, I want to know where you grew up how you got into off-roading and mainly a little bit about your, your time on three wheelers. Well, um, are you sure we can do this all in an hour? Probably not. I'll probably have to have you come back. Um, well, it, the gist of, of my career, um, and how it started is I grew up in San Diego, obviously. And, um, my father was in racing. He worked for years for Bruce Crower, built, oh my goodness, he, he developed a lot of things for Bruce and the drag racing industry and the whole thing. Well, in the 60s, he also went to Indianapolis and went to work back there, and he ended up working for A.J. Foyt through those championship years from the early mid-60s and, and so on until about 1970. I was a kid that you know, in school, everybody wanted to be a, a doctor or a basketball player or a fireman or whatever it was. I grew up in round race cars. I mean, there's no doubt about it. My grandfather used to race midgets and everything else. So it was just something that I wanted to do. Now, when you're that young, you, you know, you don't expect it's ever going to come that far. You don't know. And um, as I started racing motorcycles and things like that, but not all the time, just riding a lot, um, it, it, I liked it. I liked it. And um, we got involved with uh, Al Gerhardt and a group over at um, Honda of Lemon Grove, um, old Mr. Lachine's place at the time, Dick. And we started building ATV chassis. And so I had, basically it was just headed toward the dunes. You know, we used to go ride all the time and then come to find out, you know, everybody's racing these things. And next thing you know, we're not just building a chassis for, you know, people riding in the dunes. It's all right. We're building the next generation one that ended up, you know, people were racing. So, um, and then I just kept getting prodded by everybody. Well, when are you going to start doing it? And that's pretty much how it started. Started running up at South Bay Speedway. We ran, uh, we could run three, four times a week from San Diego all the way to Ventura. Um, and we did. And we'd go, we'd drive up there at night. We'd turn around come back at night and go back to work the next day and go do it again. Um, and, you know, it was one of those things. All, you know, all it takes is to win one race and then it's done. You're, you're pretty much locked in and it's off to the races. And um, I was fortunate enough that the equipment that I had um, – probably outweighed my talent. Let's just put it that way, you know, in the beginning. 
but we also had a lot of um, support from a lot of people. And I got to know Dean Kirsten and all those guys at that point, which was Three Lang Magazine, which helped um, helped our business and to some extent, to most part, helped my career um, getting noticed. And um, because we were on the cutting edge of a lot of things. Um, you know, we were the first ones to actually, we beat Honda to a suspended three-wheeler. You know, I remember going to races up and down, you know, in LA and everything else, even Riverside and, and being chased around by Japanese guys from Honda, you know, trying to get up pictures of it. And um, it's like, all right, you know, I'll just cover it up and irritate them, you know, kind of a thing. And it was actually quite fun. My dad used to get a big kick out of it. But, um, you know, so it was inevitable. Sooner or later, they were going to actually build a suspended bike. And um, they did, which was fine. It, it needed, the, the, the industry itself needed to grow. And Honda's, um, obviously Honda was the biggest part of that industry as it was. Um, they took it to the next level, which was fun. It, you know, it, it started to make things different. And then when I got asked to run the Parker 400, as a group with uh, several of us to try and get uh, the three-wheelers into score at the time because they weren't actually allowed to race. Um, we did this, I think it was 1980, 80, maybe 81, something like that. They had allowed the, um, and this was more of a, a, a preliminary deal, so they allowed us to run, but we only ran the California side. We didn't run the Arizona side, or was it the Arizona side? We didn't run a couple. One of them, you know, the longest one we ran. Um, and I think we, at that time, the group of us, and it was me, Dean, you know, Wax, everybody were, there There was a handful of us that were riding these things. We didn't ride for very long in any part, you know, any section. But um, it it opened up the eyes to everybody as how how fast and how much fun those things were. And that they could be raced and they could be raced safely and they can put on a show and pretty much everything just started to explode from there. Um, you know, then it was, okay, now, now Honda's going to get involved and they're going to put a team together and then the near and then, you know, down the road, Yamaha's get involved. Um, we ended up building, um, a bike, a Yamaha, a suspended Yamaha, um, that I got the engine from Scotty Burnworth from his dad, uh, that, um, who was it? Uh, God, I can't remember. Um, Rudy and Dean, they were the guys that were building all, I can't remember the name of the, the company that they had at the time, but they were the ones building all this, the Yamahas for factory teams, their motors and oh, Rudy and Dean Dickinson. So it was R and D designer, R and D engines or whatever it was. The thing was a rocket. Rocket won a lot of races with it, you know, and and the next thing you know, you're getting more and more people looking at, you know, who you are and what you're doing. We were kind of on the outside. I um I raced, you know, that Honda deal for a bit in the beginning, and then we just kind of backed up. And how long were you? Took, how long were you with Honda? I signed my contract with Honda in 1983, and we I was there till the end of it. Um, I think it was 1983. Um, I do remember a funny story. Um, we, um, I, Dean Kirsten had come to me and they wanted to put together a desert team, you know, a, a bike that they can go out and compete against Honda. So we built an engine, we built the bike. Dean put all the sponsorship together. We had a trailer set up. Um, I talked to Mike Hallett, 
to, you know, see if he was interested in being my teammate. And we went out and we chased Honda down. I mean, we literally, we put, we scared him, <laughs> quite frankly. And when we won the overall, won the overall at the 500 that they didn't show up to that year, um, that kind of that kind of put things in perspective for them. It's like, okay, we're not the only ta- team in town, and these guys are privateers, and you know they're fast. Um, I do remember once we were running against them, and I don't it was down near San Felipe at a pit, but from my background, from my dad's background, you know, we always looked at, okay, how can we be better? How can we, you know, make things better at a race? Um, and one of them was pit stops and Honda. And I, I used to watch them as they were not fast. They would just mosey in they'd get off the bike, they'd grab their goggles, they'd get something to drink. The guys would, you know, wrench on the bike and off they'd go. Well, we came in and we were running behind them at this one particular pit. We decided we were going to, I'll back this up. We decided we were going to change how pit stops were run on these things. And we actually had it set up to where it was like an IndyCar stop, literally. I mean, we practiced this thing like there was no tomorrow. We came in at this one particular stop and Mike and I switched and we were out in 15 seconds. And Honda, I mean, I remember going by the Honda pit and they were just like, oh, they it just like stunned them they were scrambling they didn't know what to do (laughs) they i mean it was hysterical and from that point on dry brakes and everything else became part of and when i ended up with honda that was their pit stops changed and we were knocking them off so i mean time's money if you're standing around waiting around you're gonna get beat well a lot of that played into um my being signed by honda which was fun i mean it was great it was it was a lot of fun and um and I, as my career went on, I found that my calling was more in the off-road side of it, the desert side of it, other than racing Riverside, because I, I love to go for miles and hours, and I didn't have any problem racing at night. In fact, my times at night were sometimes equal or faster than my times during the day. Maybe it's focus. I don't know what it was, but it, it was a blast, you know? That's, that's pretty cool to hear. I mean, cause you're telling, you're talking about things that, that are before my time. I was still in high school, uh, still, you know, working at the shop when I could and, and just learning about all you guys. Well, we, you know, it's funny. It was a time back then where, you know, when you're in the bottom or, or the front end of, I guess what you want to say, when everything's being developed, Things are moving so fast. I mean, we did that whole deal with Husqvarna in 1982. That scared the living crap out of Honda. I mean, Wes McCoy flat told me. He said, look, if, if they would have gone to production with that bike, it would have changed how we did things. That thing was, it was basically a race bike that you could use. Instead of taking a bike that Honda built as a stock bike and converted it into a race bike, this was a race bike that you could throw dune, dune tires on it and go run the dunes. You know, it was, and it handled, it had, it had stuff on it not even thought about doing on it. And unfortunately, um, a political, you know, issue that went on inside Husqvarna from a VP who wanted this thing to a president who didn't, and, you know, the thing got shut down. And it, it really was, it was kind of unfortunate because it, it, that thing was probably one of the most fun things I ever rode. And it was, a, it was an insane dune bike. What's that? And all I had to do that one. That was a 250. Oh. That was a 250. I mean, we had 
forks on. We had we had more travel than the Honda did. This was before the. I mean, so this is 1982, and we had six in the front and six in the back. Honda was still dealing with three. I mean, we had we had it all. I mean, chromoly axles. Um, I mean, it was it was pretty wild. That's awesome. I, that was I, think part. I think I remember hearing of that machine. I never got to see it. It, you know, it floated around for a while. We had them, we had them around for a while, and you know, eventually, I don't know what ever happened to them. My dad might have done something with them. Um, you know, it, it's hard to say. I mean, I've seen pictures. Somebody, we did make an automatic one. That's what they wanted us to do, and I did see pictures of that one. I don't know, maybe three or four years ago, somebody popped up on Facebook and said, "Hey, is this your bike?" And I said, "Yeah." You know, and words, and I basically, where'd you find it? And they said somebody had it in their garage. So they, they were floating around. There were three of them that we built, and that was one of them. So, but like I said, it, unfortunately, it didn't go into a production thing. So it, it'd be which, sure nice to have a toy like that, just even just to look at right now. Well, it's funny. I it, like the Yamaha we built. It ended up with somebody, and and I got a tag and on Facebook here not long ago, maybe a year or so ago, that they had that bike, you know. And um, it was it, it, it's fun to see that this stuff is still around. It's as as my career has has evolved and gone in different directions, you know. I've kind of shed a lot of that stuff out, you know, and I just kind of accumulate things as I go. And I never thought back then that keeping all my Honda gear or any of that stuff or keeping these bikes would have been of value. I just never dawned on me that 40 years later that this stuff would be, you know, that valuable. Um, And it is. I'm really happy to see that the industry hasn't gone away completely and that people are still racing these things and they're having a blast. And, and it's perfect because we were the founders of this damn sport. So it kind of makes you feel good. Well, I have been all over the world working on people's toys and and got to go and do some pretty amazing things and also learning from the 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 founders and the people that that charted the waters, you know. I mean, I was very fortunate to be born into a family that this is what we do and this is what my father's always done. Oh, and I'm I'm so happy to hear that you guys are still in business doing this. I mean, you know, all, a lot of the guys that, that I used to work with or ride with and, and or even raced with that that are still involved, I think it's spectacular. I think it's great. You know, um, I just chose a different path in racing. You know, when I stopped riding, I, I made a commitment that I was done. You know, it was time, basically, in my eyes, it was, I'd done that, been there, now I'm going to do something else and keep raising the bar. And that's kind of how my career evolved after I got back from Europe in 1987. Um, and that actually, and the shoulder injury didn't hurt, didn't help, you know, kind of helped that decision also. So, you stopped racing three-wheelers in the 80, 87? Or- yeah, well, it was the end of the 87 season um, was when I stopped racing. And at that point, I was racing. I had signed a contract with Yamaha of Europe. So I spent the entire 1987 in Europe racing. Yamaha of Europe and um, was involved in a, a crash up in the northern end of Holland and um, destroyed my left shoulder basically and ended up with surgery 
and when I got done at, and there was only one race left as it was. So I was, you know, pretty fortunate when that all happened. But when I got back, it's, and I, we couldn't come to terms on another year over there. So I, you know, I just made the decision, all right, I'm going to go back and, you know, I'll find another form of race and get back involved in. And that's kind of how it ended up. You know, I got back and said, yeah, I'm done. You know, at that time, Honda had already gone through their issues. That's why I wasn't race for Honda any longer is that the team had to be disbanded because of the, uh, you know, the safety issues that all the lawsuits and everything else, which really that, that wasn't much fun. I mean, that, and in reality of it is, is as they, as it went forward and everything else, the injury rate versus three wheeler versus four wheeler, you know, given the same time periods were just about the same. You know, and at one point I did do a lot of expert testimony for Honda. And most of these cases I worked on, you know, and this goes to a lot of things. It's a mechanical object. It it has a physical limit. It doesn't have a brain. You know, it's the person who's writing the thing is the one that's supposed to be the intelligent one. Well, unfortunately, a lot of these these issues, these crashes and things like that were with kids and their parents were allowing them to ride bikes that were above their capabilities. They'd get hurt or there'd be alcohol involved or there'd be something dumb, you know, and it's just unfortunate, but it, it took away a way of life, you know, for a lot of us. Now, some of them stayed in, some of them didn't. It was just at that point, I decided to make a change and move on to something different. Yeah, it was a, it was a tough time at, at some points in the in the industry. And what happened at that in the eighty seven, eighty eight, eighty nine era is the the aftermarket guys ended up taking control of the, the of the industry and and ran with it. And I think what it is today is all stems from all your aftermarket companies that had the, the wherewithal to develop machines that could race in every environment and, and made the races as big as they were and brought the teams in-house to their independent companies. And um, here we are today. And the, the factories, the last time the factories came back, I think they, they did more damage than they did help. Uh, you're, pro- you know, you're, most, you're probably right. You know, at that point, I had made the conscious decision to, to bail. You know, I, I had bigger dreams. I wanted to, you know, one of my dreams was always to work at Indianapolis. And literally in 1988, I went to work for an IndyCar team and got, you know, that, that started that next phase. And it was a blast. I mean, to be able to be there at Indy where my dad had been, where, you know, my, literally my hero AJ had been. And I, you know, spent a lot of time around him. Um, and beyond that, and be in that whole environment was something that I had always wanted to get to. I thought that was the pinnacle of, of racing. And well, it was. It was a blast back then, you know. You don't uh, – you did Did any of your off-road cross over into the asphalt stuff? Any of the knowledge that you brought with you? Yeah, it did in a way because I did a lot of um, – ultimately, I ended up doing a lot of road racing myself. and. I ended up being very successful with it, that in SCCA stuff and go-karts and things like that. And I attributed a lot of that to what I learned racing the desert and racing three-wheelers and racing four-wheelers, um, knowing slip, you know, how these things ride when they're, they're sliding sideways, how to pedal a car, how to do this. It, 
it all played into it, how to read lines, how to, to pick lines, how to make passes without actually rubbing on somebody. You know, it was a, cause you realistically, you didn't want to be touching anybody with regular, you know, bad things were going to happen. And, and unfortunately it's, it did happen a lot of times. So yeah, a lot of what I learned back then carried over dramatically to what, um, what I ended up doing. And, and when you take like with your job now, how much of the off-roading uh, affects the asphalt stuff? Because I know that you work with a team that has uh, some former uh, truck drivers, desert race drivers, driving asphalt cars now. Does, does the transition help both of you or, or hurt you? No, it, it's, I mean, I personally, I don't personally work on the cars anymore. I, I do a lot of uh, chassis work. I'm, I'm very involved in the chassis very involved in the inspection side of the chassis, work a lot with NASCAR. But I do agree that dirt has helped the careers of more NASCAR drivers than you can imagine, Jeff Gordon being one of them. And honestly, Jimmy, um, his driving style and how I read his, because I read all the race notes and listening to what he's communicating, I can see him in an off-road vehicle. I mean, he drives that thing like, you would to some extent in an off-road vehicle and, and, and a lot of that experience and what he feels and everything else comes from that. Uh, I think if you grow up in that, that era, the car going sideways is nothing new to you. Driving a free vehicle is nothing new. It's, you know, knowing how far it'll, it'll drift is nothing new. It's just how you manage it. And you know, what you, what you do, what changes that in this industry is, is tire management. And you have to learn how to do that. I mean, running a, you know, an off-road race in Pomona's, you know, horse track or whatever it is up there that we used to do and all the Mickey Thompson stuff, the races were done quickly. Now you, you know, and I, I mean, Jimmy has made the comment before where you have to get used to running long races. I mean, when you're in a vehicle for four hours and it's 115, 120 degrees inside that car, it's a challenge. I mean, and, and the, anybody that says that those guys aren't athletes need to have their head examined. Well, you take the conditioning that you used to do to race three-wheelers because that's always developing and, and gaining. You know, some of the guys that, that started racing four-wheelers, training was an afterthought. It wasn't something that, that we did um, all the time because, you know, we just weren't there or everybody had a job and, you were racing on the weekends and that was your training. Yeah. You know, I, I, I can't complain because I was paid to do this and yeah, we had training schedules that were pretty regimented and most of it stuff that we developed on our own because as we got further into this stuff, we realized that, you know, you've got to be in shape. I mean, that last 30 minutes of a, you know, 45 minute race or the last 20 minutes is very critical. If you can run fast or faster than you were in the beginning, you were going to beat somebody. So it was very, you know, it was a very big part of it. And especially from my side on the off-road side is that last hundred miles, that was it. That was key. A lot of times that was key to a win is, is you could, if you were behind, as you can track them down and just drive by them. And a lot of that's, and most of that was conditioning and diet and everything else. 
well, the desert racing today to my, to the experience that I have of it, you know, you're not really racing the first 250 miles on a 500 mile race. You're starting to pick up the space at pace after 250 miles, but that last hundred green flag dropped. You're, you, you, it's hammer time. You put the fastest guy on and, and let him go. You know, there's, you take the restraints off and Hey, bring it in. You have to get, you have, you got three minutes to make up. You better do it. Yeah. And that's, that's how we used to look at it. You know, it was the 80% rule. It was 80, 100% is how I looked at it. You run 80 for X amount of miles. And then when it came time to drop the hammer, you knew when it was, cause it was already mentally talked about with yourself and the team and everything else and where your pit strategy was and all that. And you go, you literally, that was it. You put everything out there on the line and you just go. Yep. That's, that's kind of the way it, it's still managed pretty similar that way. Let me ask you, let me ask you to go back in time a little bit and talk to me about some of your fiercest competitors back in the old three-wheeler days. If you can remember some of those guys. It, there's a handful of them. There wasn't anybody that we raced with back then that were that really wasn't fast, but I remember Ace Williams or old Bob, we were good friends, but, and that guy, that guy was a never quit guy. And he was always, he was funny as an innovator. He was big. I mean, he did things and challenged things that were, you know, really against the norm, you might say, but back then there, who's to say there was a norm because it was changing all the time. But then you had Curtis. I mean, Curtis and I battled for years. Um, Wax, Wax and I were typically roommates half the time but it's fun you'd be friends you'd be in the pits being a friends and as soon as you got to the track his game on there was no such there was no love there was no no tenderness it was game on you're gonna get stuff you know or break check you're gonna you need to be on the giving in and not the receiving end but dean everybody back then was fast but we all grew up doing the same thing it was funny we'd go down to 24th street and we'd ride on the weekends you know, we'd be racing during the week, but we'd be down in the sand down there in the berms riding for hours. Or we'd go someplace else and go ride. We'd go to the sand pit. we go, you know, we went all over the place. If We just never got off those things. It's like we're on them all the time. That's that's what the difference is almost to the point now in some of the guys is, is they don't ride as much or the, the passion for riding isn't there. You know, they... They go get on their cell phone or they're doing something else, but playing video games, but the, the passion for the ATV deal. That's, that's really what I'm trying to draw out of you is, is just how much the passion that you had for it back then, like all the other guys, which rolled into the guys like me getting involved. It, you know, that's the thing. And it, that goes to the core of who I am anyways. I'm a very competitive person. And I was fortunate and have been fortunate enough to grow up with people around me who have been very successful in racing as a whole. Um, and guys who have told me things that, you know, if you're going to win, these are some of the things that you need to do. And one of the first things that they told me so it's, is before you learn how to, before you win, you need to learn how to lose. And by that, it means, it doesn't mean what a lot of people think it does. It means if you're fast and you're losing, there's a reason behind it. What are they doing differently than what you're doing to get to the finish line? Is it a mental issue? Is it a physical problem with what your conditioning is? Is it what you're writing? What is it? 
figure it out. Are they beating you here? Are they faster here? Are they, you know, where are you beating them? Where are they beating you? And you have to mentally put all this together. It, it's it, once you figure that out, then winning, it's it's not easy, but it becomes a lot simpler. And once you get that first win, then it's off to the races. Then you understand what it's all about. And I don't like losing. I've never liked losing. But at the end of the day, it's like, all right, if I did lose a race, I went back. And I, it, whether it was two hours away, four hours away, I spent that entire time trying to figure out what it was and what were the reasons that I got beat. Well, if you, and then you go, if you start, you go you, back. And, go ahead. Yeah, you go back and you fix it. And that's how my brain works. You know, it's like, all right, I got beat. Why? And go fix it. Make the changes. Make the corrective changes to go out. And if that meant that I needed to go practice more, if I needed to be practicing on a specific track more and pick that up, that's what I did. That's that's commitment. That's the love that you have for that sport. Is If you want to be successful at it, you have to pretty much sacrifice everything for it. And I had no problem doing that. That's the, that's one of the hardest things to teach is sacrifice. Most people, it's a it's a personal choice. You have to have the desire to give up some things in life that you'll get back. But if you want to be a champion or a, a champion for more than a day, you have to sacrifice big portions of your life to your training, to your thought process, to the development of your machine, to working with your team to get better. Oh, it's huge. I mean, it, it, it really isn't. And I mean, I, and through the, through my career, there have been times when I think I went one time, you know, one period of time, I was maybe a year and a half, two years before I had a day off, you know, and we we're working dumb hours. Um, it, it, depending on the level and where you were, you, you know, I do remember one time of, of a, and I've done 24 hour stints. I've done 36, I've done 48, but I did a 54 straight hour stint to make sure we made it to a race. So oh, I, we've all been there, man. Anybody that's that commitment. Oh yeah. No, I mean, it's, is yeah. Anybody that's, that really truly loves what they do. They're not going to, they're not going to hesitate. They're not going to blink. Um, and it was really funny because it wasn't until I got out for a bit and then met my, my wife that, you know, I, I was still working in racing, but wasn't going to some of the tracks like I used to. I found out that there was a whole nother world out there. There, there were things to do outside going to a racetrack, you know, my entire life from the time I got out of high school for the most part was racetracks twice a week, three times a week, definitely on the weekends out of state, in state, out of the country, you name it. That's it. You didn't know anything else. You really didn't. It took a long time to figure out that there's another world out there. Well, I've been traveling this uh, for about 30 years. And this is the first year uh, that I have normal life home memories building instead of prepping to go to a race or being at a race. And, and you know what that's like. It, you know, it's funny. We, um, you know, we both shared, the, we're sharing the same lives. And I think, um, I think my son was 13 before we actually went on a quote unquote family vacation for a week. And it was on that vacation that I made the conscious decision that, okay, I don't even know my kids. You know, 
I've got to make a change on this. So I went back in and racetracks ended. No more racetracks. The hours, you know, that was still a hard part to work on, but the racetracks ended. So it was, I wanted to see my kids grow up because I, I did it. I made it a point to make sure that they were not involved in racing. And then I did not want them involved in racing just because as, as hard it is on families and especially at the level that I'm at now, you know, the fortunate level I'm at now, it is, it's devastating to families. You never see your fathers. You never see, you just, you don't see your kids, you know, and it's hard. It's very difficult at this level. I, I think that any program that is at a higher level that is winning and that is, is developing a product or trying to be a innovators or, or just win, uh, that's the case. It doesn't matter whether you're racing go-karts or ATVs or, you know, top fuel dragsters. It, it, there's hours have to be spent to, to develop those machines to get them ready to, to win. Oh, there's no doubt. I, I have this conversation with people all the time. They always ask me about the business side of, of racing. And I said, it doesn't, it doesn't follow a normal model. It, there's, there is no normal model. I mean, literally, if, if, we could, if we could physically work for 24 straight hours continuously, we would do it. We'd find a way to do it and get to the racetrack. Even though the racetrack, it might be, you know, a month away. It doesn't matter. You'd still be doing something because you get to a point you need, uh, you'd have a brainstorm and then you'd change something. Well, that one thing changes three other things. So then you're changing that. So it, it's, a, it's a constant evolution of changes. And that's just how it works. I mean, it, but it does not work under any normal business model at all. And, and your racing brain never shuts off. You know, you just, it just never can. Because you're always thinking about that machine. You're always thinking about what needs to be checked. Oh, that didn't get checked. This is overdue. And, and you could be driving to the race and realizing, hey, when we get there, by the way, guys, we got to change this and this because we forgot to, you know, thinking back on the logbook, it wasn't done at this time and it's, it's overdue. Oh, yeah. You'd be amazed. One of the one of the deals that I worked on here for for us at Henrik Motorsports is pretty much a, a task management scenario where we developed a program to try and capture that, to try and make sure that when our cars go in the box, they're done. We have checks and balances on everything, and it's frightening how many things have to get done to get that car in the hauler. I mean, you, you would you would lose sleep at what we have listed out that has to get done for each one of these cars and each track is different. So each track puts its own spin on what we have to do to those cars. So yeah, it's, it is, your brain is, it never shuts off. It is, uh, it's hard to go. to. I know how much I stretch this building a quad to go to the races. I could imagine a car with even more moving parts than, than my, than my quad has. Uh, so I want to get a little personal with you. You mentioned your children. How many kids do you have? I have two kids. I have, uh, my son is 24 um, and is working down. I'm, I live near Charlotte. He's working. Um, he graduated college with a, a biology degree, and he's working as an environmental inspector for uh, – it's a national company. Um, it's called Mazer Consulting, and they – 
they go around and they um, do all the surveying for pipelines, for even, let's just say, racetracks, for everything, roads, you name it. And he has to deal with all the environmental impact side of that whole thing. Um, my daughter is a rising senior at Auburn University. And Congratulations. We'll see where that goes. You know, she just turned 21 here at the end of last year, around November. And um, she's, I don't know if you ever remember the movie, the show uh, Beverly Hillbillies. Yes. Well, she's, she is my LMA Clampett. She is an animal nut. And um, she's actually going through Auburn on an ag business degree. And currently she's a, a dog trainer. Um, she does it in the summertime and she works for a gentleman back here that's very successful at it, knows all the actors, does all the race car drivers, dogs. She knows more about dogs than I know about sometimes I think I know about race cars. It's kind of frightening, actually. So neither one of your kids got into racing? No. Now my daughter would have been the one. I mean, and I can tell you a funny story. My son is never he, he was never that guy that that had that speed scared him, you know. And it was funny. We were, I spent, and I say this laughingly, I've spent three tours with Robbie Gordon. And on one of my tours with Robbie, we were out on the lake and he has, he had this big boat. Um, it was probably 23 foot. I mean, it had twin engines in it. This thing ran, you know, 110 miles an hour and it was a big conquest. So we all went on the lake one day or one evening, actually, we had a big barbecue over at his house. And so I had my wife, my two kids in there, they were probably, oh gosh, she was probably five, six, maybe. And then, you know, he was nine or something like that. And then I had a buddy of mine, his son is, uh, is my son's, basically my son's age. And so a little bit in between my son and my daughter. So Robbie's over there driving his boat and he looks at my son and he goes, you want to, do you want to drive it? And he goes, no. He buried his head like, no. And then my daughter jumped up there, ran right over and got in his lap. My buddy's son also went over there. So my buddy's son was the one flipping the controls. My daughter was the one steering. And by the time we looked down, we were already busting 90 miles an hour across that lake. <laughs> and they were grinning, laughing. And Robbie's looking at me and he's going, you are in trouble. Yeah. And so, yes, she was my speed demon. But um, she now, and at that point, you know, like I said, racing, I, I just, I felt like as hard as it was on my family, as hard as it was on my parents and my father, um, I didn't see that desire out of them that early. Now, I'm not going to say they weren't competitive because she played um, tournament volleyball for years and it was not, she made all the Alice State team. So we traveled all over the place. He was in baseball and he played lacrosse for years. So, I mean, it was travel teams, the whole thing. It was just their competitiveness went in a different direction than mine. Well, you know, I mean, sometimes we as dads have to push the envelope to get them to start it. Um, yeah, I, I, I can tell you that if I had to do over again, my son would have stayed in a cage. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I... I and, and it's really the other part about it is, is too, with what I do and the time I spend for me to have time to cor correctly teach them and put them on a path to be successful would have been very challenging. Um, just not being home, you know, and then they needed to start when they were eight, nine, 10 years old and I was never around. So, you know, it, it would have been hard. And so I made the decision. 
keep them out of it. And, and you know what? That, sometimes that's the best way. It, it is very taxing. My daughter really doesn't care for racing at all, you know, from watching me race and then me being gone and missing birthdays and, and missing mm-hmm. special events at school and, you know, just not being there. Cause I was, you know, a few years back, I remember every, every Friday she'd call me, Hey, my grandson, Ethan would have a, a baseball game or something going on. You know, we got a game on such and such and you go, Oh, sorry, honey, I'm in Nevada on my way to a race and click, you know, Oops. <laughs> daughter's mad. <laughs> it's hard i mean so you know it as a parent it's it it you know now some people make it they're just you know they're doing well like robbie i mean but he's still actively involved in it and his son matt's is phenomenal i mean i remember that kid when he was in diapers and literally he you thought he was driving things in you know um so it does work but you know, on my level, it, it wasn't going to work. So, and I really, truly didn't want them involved. You know, just, it's hard. I mean, they say, they've even brought it up to me. They said, you know, I'm, I'm glad you didn't push us in that direction. I'm glad, you know, you actually made the decision to start being around more. You know, had I been, if I had not made those decisions at that time after that one vacation, I would have never seen my son play baseball. I would have never seen my daughter go to the volleyball games. I missed enough holidays i still miss holidays you know they could be out in the lake on fourth of july and i'm not you know i mean would they'll give us our our fourth of july in december (laughs) after the season when you do you follow the atv industry at all anymore i mean i know how busy you are but you ever just ever get curious and pick up a magazine or a newspaper or anything watch a video uh, I, you know, every once in a while I'll search videos on YouTube. Um, I, I see a lot of what I see is off of Facebook. You know, if it's somebody that, you know, has been friended by or knows the guys that I knew, you know, I trust that whole scenario. I don't, I just, you know, at some point I just didn't want to load up and, and have people all the time, you know, just blowing everything up. But, um, I, to a little bit, you know, to a little extent, um, but it, not, not as heavily as either I probably should, or I don't know. It's kind of, kind of one of those things. I mean, I don't really even follow motorcycle racing as much as I used to. And I've got a lot of guys at work that, you know, they're heavily involved, you know, as a fan or as a writer, you know, and they ask me questions all the time. I was like, ah, you know, haven't really paid attention. So who did win Anaheim? You know, I don't know. You know, I mean, literally nowadays, if it's not a cup race, um, and I watch that solely, not all of it, but I watch it solely, not from a perspective as a fan, but all right, when are we going to pit? What decisions are we making? We should be doing this now, you know, and I have no problem going back and questioning the crew chiefs, you know, like what the hell were you thinking? And, you know, to some extent, you know, you gotta be careful with those guys that are, you know, their egos are pretty big, but, um, it, it's, it's a whole different deal, but. I mean, I'd much rather really be out on the lake, you know, on the weekends and hanging out there or playing golf or shooting sporting clays. You know, I've, I, I still need that competitive side, that, that, that deal that floats that boat and golf and sporting clays do. And I, I do shoot competitively. So, you know, I get my, I get my time in. That's awesome. That's awesome. So, um, 
you haven't got to look at any of the new ATVs up close to see some of the modifications and the development that has gone on over the last 30 years, I take it. No, not really. I mean, I look at some of them. Um, there's a gentleman at uh, Richard Jekyll who runs up. He's out. He's here in North Carolina. He's out of Raleigh. And um, I know he does a bunch of stuff with, with Rob Selby. But I, I, you know, I, I look at some of the stuff. It looks like they've gone back in some places to like an old TT scenario where the jumps are not all that big, but there's a lot of corners, a lot of turns, which I think is great. And the tires and everything else are completely different than what we ran. You know, you can, I'll see some that, you know, their offsets are, are huge. And I understand the balance on what they're doing, but it's, um, it's just different, you know. And, and I'll look at the pictures and then I'll, you know, if there's a video, I'll watch it. If there's something that, you know, maybe these guys are involved in, I'll take a quick, if they've done a video, I'll take a quick look at it. But yeah, it, it looks like it's changed. And then again, some of it doesn't look like it's changed at all. You know, some of the technology from, you know, we're, we're racing a machine that, that's, that's winning in the desert that was designed or released from Honda in 2004. We've modified it. We've changed it but we're still using that engine platform and that frame and we just change the for the shocks and the a arms and run it with some other modifications that we've come up with but i think you'd be real interested to to sit down and 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 look at one to see some of the development that we've gone through and some of the changes we've made to make the machines more durable and faster oh i would i totally that's that's kind of where my brain goes um you know, I think I, I think I read a report one time that somebody was doing an interview with all of us, and and they asked Jimmy White about me, and he made the comment that my brain goes in a technical direction on top of being you know a racer, and that's kind of where I go. You know, I I do I look at that stuff, and so yeah, I'd be very I'd be very interested in seeing it. Um, you know, just and a lot of it, just the simplicity of it. You know, because I was always taught make it simple, don't make it hard, make it simple. Well, my dad's best saying and the thing that he's always said to me is, keep it simple, stupid. Yep. And I was beating in my head. I mean, you can make all this elaborate. And I, I truly hate the term trick. To me, that is, is a term that it, hidden in that term is break. Because it will. Yes. Every know, time. What you do, it's going to break. You know, and, and I've lived through the scenario with my dad as, you know, you never know how light you can make it till you break it. Well, we broke a lot. So, you know, you, you start to learn where that point of, of that is and you try to correct it and you build from there. But still, bottom line of the premise is simple. Motion, if you keep it simple, works. If you complicate it, it's dramatic and in it, it, it will fail. One way or another, it either won't do what you want it to do or it will fail. Exactly. They just always the, the, the parts clean, free flowing, uh, how they, how the machine rolls across the floor. If it's got a drag, you got to fix it. You got to figure it out because sometimes it's a seal. Sometimes it's a rotor, you know, you got to check the, the, the size of your tires to make sure they're balanced. Uh, I mean, all of these things that the asphalt guys have done for years and years, it has rolled over into the off-road race because if you keep the if you have offset tires, you have a vibration at high speed. Oh yeah, yeah, that's not much fun running when you're running seventy or eighty across a bunch of whoops. You know, it it kind of throws your timing off. 
Um, and it's funny. I remember once we were running Parker and I got a flat and then we went back, I went, you know, I went back to the pit or got to the pit and we changed it. And when they put the tire on it, they didn't compensate the air pressure for what was already, the one side was already, you know, elevated and the other side was still cold. Even though the pressures were the same, would have been the same if they were both put on at the same time. I turned around and came back in about a hundred yards. I said, put some, match the air pressures. I said, cause this thing is off. I mean, I, I, I literally, it was that vibration. It's pulling. I can't write. Yeah. I said, I I can't, I said, it might be, I don't care. It's not mental. It's got to get fixed. Bang that thing up and off I went, you know, never look back, but it was just one of those deals. Like this is not right. Fix it. And then actually went on and in the meetings at that point, we made those changes from the pit stop from that point on. If we had a flat, that's exactly what we do. We match pressures. So it, it all helps. It all works. So a lot of your early experience in developing three wheelers did roll over into your developmental technical knowledge that you use every day in NASCAR. Oh yeah. No, I mean, and I, a lot of that asked, like I said, has to do with my father. He was at, at five, he was a fabricator in my eyes. It was obviously, he was a master fabricator. And I remember, um, I don't know, it was half a dozen years ago. I was working for Turner Motorsports and somebody did walk up to me and goes, you are the master fabricator. So at that point I felt, you know, pretty, I never even thought about it, but there wasn't anything at that point that I hadn't done or couldn't do really when it came to fabrication. So it's like, Oh, so now I finally got there. It only took this many years, but that, that helped me. And, and what he knew and his knowledge, I learned. Um, and carried it through. And yeah, and that, that's, it helps. It really has helped my career. Is there any, if you, to ask some questions about NASCAR, is there much freehand fabrication that comes up in the development of some of those cars? Uh, yeah, to, to an extent. Um, came, when I went to this car tomorrow thing years ago, it, it kind of changed a lot of, the true fabrication side of this thing. And I've, I've noticed over the years that true fabricators and, and to me, a true fabricator is somebody that if I just went out there just in the shop and said, look, I need a bench, just build me a bench, you know, and I, and as, and I wanted to do this, this, and this, and there's a lot of guys back here that can't, you know, because a lot of guys back here, a lot of what they do is they take a, they'll take a already water jet quarter window They'll stick ducks in it and then they'll paint it and stick it on the car, you know? So it's kind of, we don't have a lot of that. We have a lot of older guys that have been around in business for a long time, but I've had guys that have worked for me in the past. That's like, you know, I wouldn't trust them to go build a bench. It's like, you're just putting crush panels in. That's just, you're good. You just keep doing that. Um, but we do, we do do a little bit. Um, we do have our components guys. We do have our R and D guys that that come up with things. But anymore, NASCAR's got such a tight rein on parts that um, there's not the innovation has kind of gone away. You know, they have put us in such a tight box on what we can and can't do that it is kind of taking some of the fun out of it. Personally, I mean, and don't get me wrong, I love the industry, but you know, I'm from old school. And old school means we're building race cars to 
a level of what we think is right. And right now, you know, even our tolerances on our chassis are, we, we, our guys, our engineers, we have to submit what we're going to run. And we were allowed 10 front clip variations or 10 chassis variations, basically. And we have to submit them. And we can't get out of that box since started last year. We cannot get out of this box. That's all we get. You know, so we have to make work with what we have. So in our comparing it to our industry, where I build my machine to my specs, my way, work with the shock manufacturer, and we go to the track and we race, and all of our development, all of our years of doing it, it shows in how well our machine works, or if we were sleeping that day, how, how far off we were. So when you guys have these cars of tomorrow, how close are all the guys, are all the teams? What is, let me rephrase the question. What is the thing that sets your guys' cars apart from everybody else? Well, everybody's cars, like I said, each team has their own engineers. Um, They work within a box and in, and I can tell you, you can put five engineers in a room and you can tell them to design a mousetrap, right? They'll have five different versions of a mousetrap. And the one thing they'll all have in common, the only thing they'll all have in common is they'll kill the mouse. The rest of it, the designs will be completely different. And that's kind of where we sit. So we submit that in. Um, a lot of it is, you know, when you get to the track, there's so much that you, the bodies play a huge part. Your suspension and how you've got it set up plays a huge part. There isn't a driver out there that can drive the same car as somebody else. So each driver has his own set way of, of how he wants the car to feel. And then you throw the weather in, you throw the track conditions in, you throw tires, you throw all this in. And it takes a lot. I mean, and it's, you know, it's why, and over the last, I would say the last, last half a dozen years or so, the racing has gotten so competitive is that they, they have restricted a lot of what we used to do to a point where now we have to work into a box and that box is very narrow. So, you know, on any given day, that one person or that one team is going to shine. Um, and a lot of times it's the driver and it might be a track that fits his eye better than somebody else. Um, but if you notice and you look in there, the guys that run in the top, and I'm going to say that I'm going to broaden out the top 15 are always the same guys in the top 15. The guys in the top 10 are usually always the same guys. So is it driver or engineer? They'd like, they like to have a NASCAR, but as any form of racing, and I'm sure you know this, money, talent are hard to beat. Yeah, I, I get it. Money. There is no substitutes for cubic dollars in any form of racing. The guy with the most money has the most tricks up his sleeve and just has more options than the guy that doesn't. And the guy doesn't mean the guy that doesn't have the money isn't going to come out and win a few races. But over the long haul, he's not going to be able to pull the trigger like you are. No, and then the resources, that's where we have the resources. And the resources could be just in personnel, you know. And if we need to work long hours, then we've got guys that can split shift. I mean, it, that's a lot of times where that comes into play. Our teams don't. Now, all the smaller teams nowadays, a lot of them rely on um, engineering um, agreements they have with teams. So a lot of the younger, smaller Toyota teams will have engineering, you know, uh, contracts with TRD or Joe Gibbs. You know, we've got 
Chevy teams that we have engineering degree or, you know, uh, we had an alliance with them to help them out, you know, and it's to bolster the Chevrolet product versus the Toyota product versus the Ford product. You know, you need to put all these guys out there and you have to, you know, try and help them be competitive because it doesn't do anything other than help the sport. You know, you, the more people are competitive, the racing gets better. And, you know, it gets people in the stands. And that's where lately NASCAR's had a problem was putting people in the stands. So, and obviously right now there's a huge problem with that. Well, <laughs> Thanks, dude. They have some goofy rules going on with some of the stuff they're doing. You know, I'm, I'm an old school guy. Hey, let's just bring it back. Best guy wins. You know, guy that knows points at the end of the year won the championship. Let's just make it simple. Well, yeah, there you go. That's that term. I've said the same thing, but um, they're, they, they're not listening to me. You know, they're not listening to a lot of us. I mean, we all kind of, a lot of us all feel the same way. It's, let's just turn them loose. And, um, and you know, it, but it, it, it's kind of one of those deals. And, and that's kind of where I'm going to get to my next point is that with this whole new car that they're going to bring out, they're calling the Gen 7 car, it is going to be completely different than, than what we've done ever in NASCAR. And with the decision to bring this thing out and long talks with my wife and everything else, um, right now on this podcast, I'm saying that I have decided that December 31st of this year is the end of my racing career. It is time to move on. Well, I'm sorry to hear that. And, and I hope that whatever you decide to do in the, in the future, I don't know if you're going to let the, the cat out of the bag here or if you're going to wait till a later date. Um, we're going to miss you in, in all forms of it. Well, and, and I technically won't be, I will never be probably completely out, but as for my, you know, I haven't lost passion for it, but I'm not, I just don't want to go through, I'm at a point in my life, you know, where it's, I'm not ready for another new car, a whole new version of this car. Um, and and realistically, the car itself is is up is kind of my old old school ways. I mean, it's there's a lot of that stuff on that car that I would have liked to see NASCAR do a long time ago. But um, it's time for a change, you know. Like I said, I'm not getting out. I probably won't be out completely. I'll be one way or another. I'll be helping somebody. But on a daily basis, um, there comes a point in in your life when you need to make changes and. And I've and I've done that through my entire career. Whether I switch from ATVs to cars to road racing cars to indie cars to off road cars to whatever it is, you know, there comes a point when you need to make a change, and and I'm heading in that direction. So I'm going to try and enjoy as much as I can of this this you know next six seven months and go win some damn races and go put another championship on the board up there for HMS. I mean that would be that'd be the ultimate because I really cannot complain about my career at all. Um, from world records to championships to, you know, racing all over the world. I, I have no complaints, not one. That's, that's pretty awesome. I'm, I'm really happy to hear that. And, and it was a, it's a pleasure having you on. And, and I hope that uh, in, in the future here, when, when we get things rolling a little better, that you'll come back and visit with us again. And uh, maybe you'll have some more stories for us. And uh, we can get in depth about some of your other forms of racing. I'm, Anytime. I'm available anytime. Just, you know, let me know. And if it's, we've got a week in, you know, probably a week or so in advance. Um, so I can schedule things in. I'm good. I mean, I, I, I truly think that 
guys like myself, Jimmy, Curtis, um, Dean, you know, Wax, all of us, even Tommy Gann, Stevie, if you can get him, if you can pinpoint him down. Um, we all have a lot to say, and we had a lot of a lot of fun doing what we did. And I'm very proud of the fact that we were part of what you guys are continuing to do now. You know, we were the the guys, we were the guinea pigs, and and I I hope that what we did back then definitely was a springboard for you guys to be successful. And that's, that makes me feel good. Well, being involved with the, the, the father that I have and the things that I've got to see, you know, uh, him being on the cover of the first three wheeler magazine and me having no idea as a 10 year old kid riding my bicycle around getting in the way um, at that photo shoot, uh, you know, it, it's, it's amazing where we are today. It really is. And I just wanted to say thank you very much for your time. And maybe that if I could ever get three or four of you in the same room, in the same place, we could sit down and have a table talk and, and really tell some good stories. Oh, yeah, you'd be, you'd, you'd, you might want to pull up a chair and, and maybe bring in a, a bed because you're going to be there a while. Well, hey, I think the, the listeners would love it. You know, it, it's always great to go back in time and realize that, the guys today, yeah, they're great, but somebody had to lay that foundation. Yeah, and I, and I, I like that. And that's the one part I really do like about it because I kind of gotten away for so long. And when I started getting, you know, I was never on Facebook. And when I did, I started getting pinged by all these people. I'm like, wow, I didn't even know anybody knew who I was, you know, that it had been so long ago. And to see that the industry has continued and has been as prosperous as it is, and people are still enjoying themselves. That's the part I, I truly like about the whole thing, is that we took something that nobody thought was even, was even a dream to anybody and started a revolution, and it's still going today. It's amazing. It really is. Well, Tracy, I'm going to let you get back to your, to your night, and I just wanted to say thank you very, very much for coming on ATV Talk, and we will be in touch with you. and. Uh, God bless and good luck with your future endeavors. Well, thank you very much. And um, I really appreciate your asking me to do this and tell your father I said hello. I will, sir. Maybe, maybe, maybe next time we'll bring him in and have him sit in with us. That would be, I would love that. I really would. The team here at ATV Talk would love your feedback. Please email us at hello at ATVTalkPodcast.com. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. If you did, don't forget to rate us on all the available platforms and share us with your loved ones. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook for more ATV Talk News. See you next time.